Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Have you ever felt out of place? For real, have you ever felt out of place? Maybe you're not all that athletic and you had to be one of the ones picked on a sports team as a middle schooler or as an elementary school kid and you were the last one or the next to last one and you know, you felt out of place. You didn't really help the team. You just didn't want to hurt the team. Or maybe you uh, don't have any rhythm and you happen to be put in some kind of musical opportunity. A number of months ago, my boys got a new game for their Nintendo Switch. It's called Mario Party. And for those of you who don't know it, don't worry about it, but there, there's an opportunity for multiple players to play. And there are little mini games that you get to play. And of course, our boys want their mom and me to play with them. And so we play a few of those mini games. But there's this one particular mini game where you take the controller and you basically dance with it. Okay? You have to do the move that the screen tells you to do. My boys love it when they pick that mini game and I'm playing with them because they know they're going to win. They're going to absolutely, totally destroy dad because I have no rhythm. I'm out of place. I would be out of place singing with the praise team. Somebody would be like, who in the world is leading me off key? We're out of place. You've been out of place before. You felt odd and weird. Well, Peter is writing to a group of people in this particular passage of Scripture uh, that we're going to look at. He's writing to people who felt out of place. In some ways, they were out of place. We're entering into a new sermon series entitled Living Hope for Troubled Times, and we're going to look at the book of 1 Peter. This letter that Peter wrote to a group of believers scattered across Asia, helping them to understand how it was that they could make sense of their faith So have a theological understanding of it, but also make it practical and lived out in day-to-day life. And and Peter is a master at giving us both of those things in this wonderful little book. And we're going to spend our time tonight just on the the greeting of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Uh, Peter begins by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion... In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, This wonderful little greeting kind of sets the stage for all that Peter's going to do. He emphasizes some things that we want to take some time and look at. One of the things I love about this epistle is it is uh, Peter, in a sense, preaching. It's exhortations. It's Peter being an encourager to those that have either heard him preach before. And so he's exhorting them. So he gives them two exhortations. And this is really going to be the heart of our message. He exhorts them to embrace grace and to practice peace. And what we're going to do, we're going to unpack why we should do that. He gives us that at kind of the the last part of this greeting. But we're going to unpack why he tells us we're to embrace grace and to practice peace. Uh, Why are we to do that first? Well, notice who he says we are. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
That word exiles means that the people that he's writing to, the believers, the Christians, in all of these different locations across Asia, and it's a general letter meaning that it is not to a specific church or congregation with a specific scenario in mind. Some of Paul's letters were like that. They were written to a specific church with specific problems. Think of the letter to the church at Corinth. That's not what this is. This is a general letter to the churches all across this region. He's writing to them, but he calls them exiles. Now, if you remember back to our Jeremiah series, the term exile might draw your mind to think about the Jewish people that were exiled for their disobedience. They were taken out of Jerusalem, they were taken out of Judea, and they were sent to Babylon as a way of punishment. But that's not what Peter has in mind. On a number of occasions throughout this letter, he uses this phrase or this word exile, and what he means by it is sojourner. He's essentially letting his readers know that, uh, folks, this isn't your home. You, you are in exile. You're away from the place that you're going to be permanently. You, you know, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, there are times that in this world in which we live, we find ourself, ourselves out of place. Look around and say, man, this is broken. Things are messed up. Things are frustrating. Things are disappointing. There's no common sense anymore. There, there are just some things that are off and some things that are wrong. And I'm going to tell you something. As a Christian and as a believer, when we, when we look around and see some of those things, our assessment is exactly right. The world is broken. It's broken in sin. It's not as God intended. The way that we're divided and the way that we're frustrated and the way that we're living in the midst of a pandemic with disease and with death and with suffering and with trial, that's not the way God originally intended things to be. Sin entered the world and we are living in a world where things are out of place. And we're out of place in that world because this world isn't our home. This isn't the place we're going to be for all time and eternity. As much as you may be living in your dream house or not, your dream house is not the place you're going to spend the rest of your existence. That's in heaven. So what Peter is reminding them of is, folks, you know, the things you go through here in this life, the troubles and the difficulties, and he's going to reference many of those through the letter. Hey, this isn't the place you're going to spend all your time. You're just an exile. You're a sojourner. You are journeying through. I'm going to tell you, that's some good news for many of us. Because if, if, if the aches and the pains and the difficulties and the challenges and the sufferings are all I got to look forward to, there's no wonder so many people are depressed and frustrated and discouraged. But folks, as believers, that's not us. Yes, our life may not be all that easy, but my goodness, we've got something to look forward to. I'll let you wait till next week when we get to that sermon and talk about some of what we get to look forward to, but they're exiles. That's one reason we're to embrace grace and practice peace because we're sojourning. This isn't our home. Another reason we're to embrace grace and practice peace is because we're elect exiles. Notice what Peter writes. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. He says, we're elect. 
Now, sometimes we come across biblical terms like that and we get bothered by them because the word election is close to the word predestination. And in this text, it's also used in, linked with the term foreknowledge. And over the centuries, there have been debates and discussions and disagreements among theologians and pastors and preachers about the nature of election and the nature of predestination and the nature of foreknowledge. And we're going to unpack that briefly for a moment, but let me take a little pressure off. Peter's writing to a group of people that needed to be reminded they were gods and they were always going to be gods. That they were, it, this was intended to encourage not to create distinction or not to create frustration or theological division. It was intended to encourage the readers. You are elect. Essentially, that means you are chosen by God beforehand to be in a relationship with the king of the universe. Very simply, it means if you're a follower of Jesus, that didn't happen by accident. God planned for your conversion experience. He worked out the details. He worked out the circumstances. He brought you to a place where you'd hear the gospel. He drew you to himself. He saved you. Election is the idea that God planned it. Robert Latham in his book, Systematic Theology. And, and here's, here's where the tension is, right? Because sometimes we think, okay, if God elects us, then what choice do I have in the matter? And that troubles us because we like to think we're in control. or We like to think we have a choice in the matter. And so that kind of stuff bothers us. And then it bothers us because there are theological tensions. And, and then it bothers us because we just plain don't understand some aspects of this. Well, we think it's fatalism. In other words, if God elects, then how do we even have a choice? Why do we pray? Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we do those things? Well, let me share this. Robert Latham in his book on systematic theology says, Election cannot be understood biblically and theologically in abstraction from Christ. It is a Trinitarian decree. Bears an inseparable connection to the person and work of Christ, cannot be severed from the gospel, and is the root of all the ways union with Christ is worked out in the life experience of the faithful. It is far from, as far from fatalism as could be imagined. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gets at this very same concept. Ephesians 1, in his introduction to, uh, to the the church at Ephesus, Peter does so here, and he does so in connection with the Trinity. In other words, God the Father plans our salvation, Jesus accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit is the one that brings us to himself and seals us for salvation. It's the way Paul described it. Peter would describe it, or does describe it here, as God plans, he foreknows us, and then the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, brings us into relationship and holiness with God, and Jesus is the one to whom we obey and follow, but he's also the one who sprinkles his blood over us and cleanses us. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, let me say this very clearly, you are elect. And here's what that should mean for you. You should be greatly encouraged by that. That God would look out throughout the course of human history and say, I want you to be a part of my family. Now, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Sometimes we want to think that means that God looked out across the course of human history and said that Landon House, who's worshiping with us today, Landon's going to believe in me, and so I'm going to elect Landon to my family. Well, that's not what foreknowledge means. It's not that God looks out and sees what will happen and then makes a decision based on it. Foreknowledge is the word for intimate knowledge. It means that God knew us before anything else that ever happened. Now, here's how encouraging this should really be for us. Before anything else took place in the world, 
When God planned the crucifixion of his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, God looked out through human history and said, I want to know some people. I want to know people. I want to know them and bring them into relationship with them. He had you in mind and he had my, me in mind. He foreknew us, knew us. That's a personal intimate knowledge. And he chose us. That's election and predestination. And that displays the greatness and the glory of God and his work in our salvation. It is tremendously encouraging that God would think of us like that. Based on grace, by the way. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on what we would do, what we could do, what we might do, or what we might be. It's based completely on grace. Some of you, I know that that doctrine is troublesome because then what about those who are not elect? Robert Latham answers that. He says, he's talking about the doctrine of reprobation, those who are not found as a part of God's family. Here's the way he words it. Reprobation differs from predestination in its causality. The latter is the cause of grace in this life and eternal life in the future. But reprobation is not the cause of what occurs in this life that belongs to sin, which proceeds from human free will, although it is the cause of abandonment, abandonment by God and future punishment. The elect, for their part, will necessarily be saved by a conditional necessity that does not abolish the freedom of choice. Very simply... If God chooses us to be a part of his family, that's a part of his grace and his, he has a right to do that. But if those are not followers of Jesus who are not part of God's elect, they do, that's their choice. In other words, to be judged by God is a reflection of personal decision. God doesn't look out throughout eternity and say, I don't want that one. And so he destines them forever away. No, God looks out and says, I want that one because that one, they won't come to know me in any other way if I don't draw them to myself. That's what election means. Reprobation is the idea that we're in sin and we choose to remain in sin and we will be, or God will be justified in punishing us forever if we don't follow him. I want to tell you something, folks. That should, that should get our attention. As Christians, this should encourage us. As Christians, it should also challenge us because there are people out there who don't know Christ and the only way that they'll come to know Christ is by hearing the good news of Jesus and God working in their hearts and drawing them to himself. We have an obligation to live that out. We should embrace grace and practice peace because we're elect exiles who are in dispersion. That dispersion word is a word that the Jewish people used for being separated from their homeland. Uh, Peter picks up on that concept. He's not just talking to Jews. He's talking to Gentiles as well in this letter. But he, it's a reminder that we're not where we belong. We're not where we're going to ultimately end up. And why are we going to not end up uh, here? Why do we have a better place? Because God in his grace and in his foreknowledge has known us and has drawn us to himself. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We've already worked through that. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit. You know why God chose you if you're a follower of Him? He chose you because He wanted you to be holy. He chose you because He wanted you to be righteous. Peter's going to deal with that later on in chapter 1. He wants you to walk according to the ways of God. Why does God want that? Why does God desire that? Because, folks, the best thing and the greatest thing that ever is is God. 
The most glorious and the most wonderful and the most holy being that has ever been in existence is God. And it is right that people should see God. And it is right that people should praise God. And it is right that people should know God. And when we as followers of Jesus who have been redeemed and forgiven by God's gracious work and salvation, when we allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and make us holy, do you know what we do? We reflect the glory and the greatness and the wonder and the holiness and the majesty and the righteousness of God. And that way, other people get to see the greatness and the glory and the holiness and the majesty and the wonder of God. He wants to sanctify us. And that, that's our obligation to partner with Him in the sanctification process. And Peter will underscore how much of a responsibility that is for us in the coming chapters. In the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, get this, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you know why else God saved you? He didn't just save you for heaven. That's a privilege of being saved. He saved you to follow Jesus. He saved you to follow Jesus. He wants you to obey Christ. When Jesus says, love your enemies... You know what we're supposed to do? Love our enemies. When he says, pray for those who persecute you, you know what we're supposed to do? Pray for those who persecute you. When he says to not hate another, you know what we're supposed to do? Not hate another. When he gives us the golden rule, uh, doing others as you would have them doing to yourself, we're to obey Jesus. When he says to us that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, Now go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. Do you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to embrace that calling and obey Jesus. Our mission at Wilkesboro Baptist is to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. It's essentially a restatement of the Great Commission. And folks, when you and I pause in all of the things we like to do and say we're going to do something that obeys Jesus and leads someone to follow Jesus, that obeys Jesus. And the reason God saved us is he saved us to obey Christ. He saved us to lead others to follow Jesus. He saved us to worship and learn and serve and replicate. He saved us to baptize people in a worship service. He saved us to share the good news of Jesus. And I'm thinking about this point in the sermon, some of you are feeling a little bit guilty. Because, you know, we're saved to be sanctified, which is be holy. We're saved to obey Jesus. And man, how many things get in the way of... God's holy work in our lives. And how many things get in the way of obeying Jesus? We have an obligation to do that, but how many things get in the way? I know in my own life, lots of things get in the way of obeying Jesus and being holy and being sanctified. So Peter gave us another phrase that really is encouraging. He said, and for sprinkling with his blood. See, Jesus came down from heaven to earth to die on a cruel cross for your sins and for my sins. Peter will describe it in chapter 2 that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He is both priest and lamb. He is the one who acts as our substitute taking our place, but he's also the one who stands in between us and God. He's the mediator between God and man. And here's the beauty of what God does in saving us. God saves us and sprinkles his blood over us, which indicates that we're forgiven and redeemed. It cleanses us of our sins. And I want to tell you something. That did not just happen at your conversion. 
about a month ago or so is when Ashley put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ is actually one of the most special moments for me as a pastor is to lead someone to Jesus. But her girls were in there with her and they were listening to her talk and, and talk about trusting Jesus and they heard her pray and, and, and she just, you could see the peace that God gave her in that moment. And in that moment, God sprinkled his blood over her and cleansed her of her sins. And that's a wonderful truth. Happened to me when I was 18. It happened to some of you when you were younger, or some of you when you were older. But I want to tell you this, every sin you've ever committed was in the future when Jesus died on the cross. You and I, when we fail and when we disobey and when we don't pursue the holiness of God and when we don't act in obedience to Jesus, whether we act in disobedience, guess what we have? We have the sprinkled blood of Jesus that continues to cleanse us from our sins if we'll but confess it, confess our sins to Jesus. Who we are is why we embrace grace. And Peter closes this little greeting With this phrase, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What he's saying to us is that what we need to experience on a daily basis as followers of Jesus is the grace and the peace of God. The grace of God says to us that you're a part of his family, not because you've obeyed enough, not because you look nice enough, not because you're a part of the right family or a part of the right group of people. The grace of God says that you're a part of his family because God looked out through history and said, I really want to care about that one because that one is helpless and that one can't do anything without me and that one is broken and that one is sinful. But I want to change that one. I want to forgive that one. I want to redeem that one. I want to turn that one inside out. I want to, I want to take their heart and I want to make it a heart after me and after what I want. And, and that's grace. It's based on not what we do. It's not deserved. It's unmerited favor. And so Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peace happens first with God and then with others. It's the, it's the way that, that God says to us that, that we're no longer enemies. We're no longer uh, fighting with him about our righteousness or our unrighteousness. But we're right with him because he's made us right with himself. And so Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love that phrase. In fact, in emails that I've started to send and conversations with others, I've picked up on that as, as kind of my closing, grace and peace. And, I, and you know, I'm stealing from Scripture, but I guess if you're going to steal from a place and use something over and over again, I think Scripture's a pretty good place to do that from, right? And, and two, it keeps it ever fresh in my mind that the entry point in the Christian faith is grace and the living point of Christian faith is peace. It's what we're supposed to live by and what we're supposed to experience on a daily basis. And so Peter exhorts us to embrace grace. How do we embrace grace? Well, if you're an unbeliever and don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you embrace grace by admitting that you're helpless and that you're hopeless without Him. By admitting that you cannot save yourself. By acknowledging to God that you're sinful and that you are part of the problem in the world. And, and that you can't fix it because you've tried. And when you admit that to God, what you're saying is, God, I can't do this on my own. You're also saying, I don't deserve it. Because none of us deserve God's gift of mercy and gift of grace. None of us deserve the forgiveness that he wants to freely offer. 
So we embrace grace when we receive Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. Folks, that, that's a beautiful and, and a wonderful thing that, that you and I need to go back to often. If you're a believer, you should go back to that day of your conversion often. And remember how much you didn't bring. Uh, I think Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the spiritually bankrupt. It's the spiritually impoverished. It means that when we acknowledge that we have nothing and bring nothing and are nothing before a holy and a righteous God, that's when God gives us the privilege of receiving his grace and being accepted by him. See, God's offer is free. It's costly because it costs Jesus a lot, but it's free to us. But we have to come on his terms, not our own. I don't get to come on my own terms. And so embracing grace is acknowledging that I've done nothing to deserve it. But I get the privilege of receiving it because God is glorious and wonderful. We embrace grace when we recognize that God did not save us because he looked into the future and saw how great we would be. But rather he saved us because he saw how helpless we were. It's not based on what he knew would happen with us. I mean, God didn't save me because he thought I might be a pretty nice preacher one day. It's not why he saved me. And he didn't save you because you're a good singer and you'd be a great singer for Jesus. He didn't save us for any of those reasons that he might use us and, and use us in, in his service. He didn't save us for those reasons. He saved us because we're helpless. He saved us because without him redeeming us and knowing us and calling us and drawing us, we would be destined for a sinner's hell. Embracing grace is acknowledging that. We embrace grace when we commit our lives to following Jesus. What do I mean by that? Listen, let me tell you, you will love Jesus more. You will obey him better. And you will let the Holy Spirit sanctify your life the more you think about the grace of God. The more you dwell on the fact that everything you have from Jesus is undeserved, the more that draws you into a desire to be what God wants you to be. We don't get where God wants us to be by legalism and by guilt and by those types of things that many of us use to get our kids to do what we want them to do or to get our bosses to do what we want them to do or to get our spouses to do what we want them to do. I mean, those, those kind of things don't work with God. And it, God doesn't use that with us. Doesn't guilt us in obeying him. You want to tell me, here's what happens. When we embrace grace, we want to follow Jesus. We want to love him and live for him. Not just embrace grace, but we need to practice peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Both of those. We practice peace when we embrace grace, by the way. You get this, right? Here's what I mean. How many of you love having God's grace? Oh, we do. Man, I mean, we love it. How many of you love giving God's grace to somebody else? When they've hurt your feelings? How about when, they've, uh, when they have really, really done you wrong? See, see, we like God's grace on us. But we find it a whole lot more difficult to share God's grace with others. I'm not saying we can. I'm not saying we don't. I just... When we're wronged, we find it difficult. And here's what peace is. Peace is giving away what God has given us. The word there in Greek is arene, but Peter picks up on it from the Hebrew term shalom, which has this multifaceted meaning, not just a peace with God in terms of an internal relationship, but it carries with it the idea of making things right with people around us. 
In other words, in our circle of influence, in our relationships, whether that's in our home or whether that's with our neighbors or whether that's with the people we work with, that we are to make the world a better place. And I don't use that term loosely. Like a lot of times we use it, hey, we need to make the world a better place. But seriously, we need to be in right relationship with other people. And what Peter is saying is we're to practice peace in the relationships that we have around us You and I are to live underneath the grace of God so that we can share and practice peace with others. We practice peace when we show grace to others, when we give someone the benefit of the doubt. When instead of getting upset, we forgive. That's practicing peace. We practice peace when we remember that the relationship we have is worth more than winning the argument. Telling you, a big part of the problem in our country right now is everybody thinks they're right and everybody wants to be right and nobody wants to give up being right. And everybody cares more about being right than they care about the person that they're arguing with and fighting with. And maybe some things are worth fighting about. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, in our relational influences in Wilkesboro, in Wilkesboro Baptist Church, in your homes and in your families, your arguments are not worth Losing a relationship over. And practicing peace is being willing to say, I'm going to back up. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to show grace. I'm going to, I'm going to seek peace. Because that's the way God created us to be. We practice peace when we seek harmony with others through forgiveness and restoration. So I'm just going to tell you, if you will acknowledge these two exhortations as maybe frameworks and foundations for what Peter's trying to tell us through uh, this letter, I think we'll be much better off. Think about this sermon series through the lens of embracing grace and practicing peace. Let me give you a picture that'll help us as we close out. I've largely ignored the very first words of this letter for a reason because I wanted to bring them up at the end. Peter introduces himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, That tells us a lot of things about Peter. He's probably writing this in the mid-60s, uh, BC, excuse me, mid-60s AD, 62, 63, 64 AD. He's writing this under the rule of Nero, who is likely the emperor that presided over his death, which will really uh, shock us a little bit when we read what Peter says about governors and leaders and praying for those and submitting to authorities in chapter 2. But he's writing in that context. This is probably about 30 years or so, 25 or 30 years after the events of the Gospels. Okay? And Peter has embraced his role as apostle, leader, called of God. But the reason Peter can say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you is because he had an experience, multiple experiences of God's grace and God's peace in his life. See, Peter wasn't always... Known first as an apostle. You know Peter was arrogant? He was very arrogant. It was a time not long before Jesus died that Peter said to Jesus, Hey, I'll go with you to death. I will. I'll be right there with you. I will stand right by your side. I will fight with you, fight for you, and die alongside you. Man, he was arrogant. Of course, he he didn't do that at all. Peter was not only arrogant, he was argumentative. You know, you know, some of us like to argue. We like to be right. Well, some of us think we're always right. It's not that we like to be right. We just think we are. And so guess what we do? We argue as if we're right. Well, Peter was one of those. He even had the audacity on more than one occasion. 
when Jesus said, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to the cross. Peter took Jesus aside and argued with Jesus about that. He did. He was argumentative. I'm telling you, that is brash. Argue with the man you believe is the Messiah. Try to set him straight. Peter was argumentative. And he was arrogant. At times, Peter was flat out appalling. You realize this? On the Mount of Transfiguration, he had this wonderful privilege of going with Peter or with John, James and John and Jesus on the mountainside. And they saw Jesus in all of his glory. They saw Elijah and Moses there. Peter, because he couldn't help but talk. He's a lesson in that, by the way. We, we're, usually if we're quieter, we'll be better off. But he spoke up and he said, Lord, wouldn't it be a great thing to build three tabernacles? One for you and one for Elijah and one for, one for Moses. I mean, that, you know how appalling that is? That's idolatry. I mean, he's standing there with Jesus in his glorified state, proposing worship centers for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It's idolatrous. And God corrected him. This is my beloved son. He's unique. He's not like these two. These two are here on my, out, of, out of my grace and my pleasure. He, he is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You need to listen to him. Not only was he appalling in that moment, but think about the, the, his denial of Jesus. His arrogance led to him being accused of being one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter, on three occasions, said, no, I don't know him. And the third time he cursed about it, took an oath. You know why Peter doesn't mention any of that in this part of the letter? Because that's not who he was anymore. The same Peter that was arrogant and that was appalling and that was argumentative is now an apostle of Jesus Christ because of the grace of Jesus Christ. After he met the risen Lord and looked Jesus in the eye and Jesus forgave him and Jesus called him and Jesus used him, Jesus changed Peter to such a degree that when Peter writes this letter, he doesn't write about himself. You know why he doesn't write about himself? Because it's not about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about meeting and knowing and being changed by Jesus. It's all about looking at Jesus in the face and experiencing the grace that he wants to offer you. I will tell you if you're in the room or if you're watching and you don't know the grace of God, I would invite you to confess your sins, to admit that you don't deserve anything that God would give you, to acknowledge that you can't save yourself, to believe on the Lord Jesus, that he's here to save you and forgive you, that he's redeemer, that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead, and to commit your life to following him as Lord. You take those types of phrases, those beliefs, and you put them in a prayer and you acknowledge those before God. You know what Jesus will do? He'll hear those prayers and he'll receive you and his family and he'll accept you. Why? By grace. I want to invite you to trust in Jesus by grace. Believer, I'm going to tell you something. Through this series in 1 Peter, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be motivated. What I'd like to ask you to do is just to think about the grace that God gave you when he looked down at you in your hopelessness. He said, I'm going to save you. 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 
Not because they deserve it. Not because they're nice or good looking. But because I love them. Because I want them to be a part of my family. Because I want to know them. The book of 1 Peter is designed to encourage us. I can think of no better way to be encouraged than embracing God's grace and practicing his peace. Stand with me, if you will, as we enter into a time of song, commitment, and invitation. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to trust Jesus to be your Savior. Maybe you just want to pause and thank God for the undeserved favor and merit that he's given you by saving you. Father, we come to you in this moment. And Lord, we freely admit that we don't deserve the grace that you have offered to us. But we thank you for it. Lord God, we thank you that you look down at us in our helpless circumstances, in our out-of-place situations, in our frustrations and in our brokenness, in our self-righteousness, maybe like Peter in our argumentativeness, arrogance, or appalling behavior. You look down at us in all of that. You said, I still love them. I still love him. I still love her. I care about them. I want them to be a part of my family. I want them to receive the forgiveness offered through Jesus. I want them to know me. Lord, what a statement. What an affirmation. What a privilege to, be, uh, to experience your grace. Thank you. Heavenly Father, help us as your people to take a long look at your gracious and glorious work in our lives. Help us to praise you and worship you and obey you and follow you as a result. Help us to practice the peace that you've given us with others. Move in our hearts, Lord. There's one listening. There's one watching. If there's one present that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray in this moment that you would reveal yourself to them in glory and grace. Help them to know how much you want them to follow you and be at peace with you. Have your forgiveness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.